So how do you uh, disciple your wife? Randy, you want to start off with? Um, I, I remember this being a specific challenge to me when we were in the first few years of our marriage. The, the sense of responsibility that we have to be leaders in the home, beginning with leading your wife. And I tried to pick up any resource I could in a formal way to practice this. And everything I tried to put into practice just really just fell way short. Uh, so I think that the, the reflection of how we disciple in the home and how we disciple our wives really ought to be how it's reflected in the church as we relate because it should be a natural uh, flow of your relationship with her as you desire to live before her in a godly way, to be one, as Jerry had pointed, that's demonstrating, you know, the godliness in our character, uh, our faith being demonstrated as we face challenges, but we're facing them together. And so there's opportunity on a daily basis to demonstrate faithfulness, to lead and teach through the challenges as they come, which to me is a reflection of how we ought to be relating to one another in the church as we uh, each of us are dealing with crises and, and the challenges that come, that it's an opportunity for our faith to be tested, but then also to demonstrate it. And so we're, we're living transparently, uh, unified, as that one flesh is being demonstrated. So it just comes just as a natural part of your relationship. As you cultivate love, as you cultivate uh, dependence upon one another, submission to one another, that we are, are to be dependent upon the Word of God in that. And so it, it's, there can be some formal elements to that if you develop family time of worship. But if it's dependent upon that, I think that it will fall short ultimately if we're not cultivating a natural relationship. So anyone else have any thoughts on that? Um, you know, in regards with Kyle, I know that uh, fairly newlywed and my wife and I just celebrated our 45th anniversary in September, but the first 20 years of that, we were not Christian. So, um, you know, my salvation experience was uh, a very drastic one, as was hers. Uh, it was all brand new to us, the, the faith, and uh, we didn't know uh, about the scriptures. Uh, we knew of God, but of course, that, that's as far as it went. So, being new in the faith, uh, I had a zeal um, that was uh, probably needed to be curtailed to some degree, and I immediately set these expectations out for my family that um, could have never been met by somebody that uh, had been walking with the Lord for 180 years, much less somebody that had been walking with the Lord for a week. I mean, I went after it the first week. This is what we're doing as a family. And uh, disoriented everybody for a period of time. So I think um, really what one of the things uh, Jerry shared last night that just really hit home with me, I think it was last night, um, was this idea of, of um, you know, people are going to follow Christ that, that he's put in our lives 
they're going to follow him where we take him, you know, and, and if I, I set up these legalistic boundaries for my family to start with, it just backfired. Nobody likes living inside of a box. Matter of fact, if you've got a rebel and you put them in a box, they're going to fight with all their strength to get out of that box. So um, I, I know, as, as Randy just said, the patterns of, of uh, programs and strategies and all of these things, those perhaps have their place here and there, but the observation of those women of us, day in and day out, trials and conflicts, that's what they're watching and that's what they're gonna emulate how we respond to those things. So, you know, I think that just the pure compassion and care and love that God has shown upon us as we pour that out on our wives and we're doing as, as Paul said of, of washing our wives with the water of the word those are the most important things to, to the women that's at least that's what my wife tells me you know and it took me a long time to learn that to, to love her as Christ loves me the more I read um, Paul's writings of how this is supposed to be it just never gets old over and over because Christ's love to me never gets old so if I'm loving my wife in that way, then she's following me the way that, that I follow Christ. And then the whole thing comes together really well. And I would just end with that of um, prayer uh, with and for our wives is, uh, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah, I just, I'll punctuate that and then we'll move on to the next question by saying Amen to what these guys are saying. It, it's what Jerry was mentioning in terms of your example. The life that you live is the most important thing that you will do because if you go trying to talk to your wife about the scriptures and she sees you're not praying and she sees that you're full of gossip and uh, she knows that your attitude is bitter, she's not going to want any part of that. But the most powerful uh, elements of discipleship are going to be the life that you live. It's going to be a weight on her when she sees the life that you're living. It's going to be a pressure on her to want to follow Christ because she's going to want to follow that example. And in the course of life, you're going to talk through all of the struggles and how you're processing that in your heart and life through the scripture. And that's going to be discipling her. And then what Tim also said, praying together. Because, it's, you know, when you pray together, you bear in your heart before the Lord. She's hearing all the stuff that's, that's there. You're taking to the Lord. There's a transparency. And that's uh, discipling her. And, uh, you know, and it's back to Randy's thing. I mean, uh, when we first got married, I wasn't sure what discipleship looked like. You know, should I get a chair and a pulpit and stand in front of her and sort of, you know, do... Um, but I just realized that every conversation was about the Lord. That's just our life. That's our home. We're always talking about the Lord. And uh, it, just, it just flows out of, out of your own pursuit. If you don't have anything to, to give, if you're, not, if you're not personally taking your heart and your, things, your concerns for the Lord and putting them through the grid of Scripture and working that stuff out in your heart and life, and then when you go on your evening walk or go sit around the dinner table with your wife and you're, and you're talking about whatever's going on, you're not going to have anything to give her. So it really is so much of what Jerry said the first night. It's just, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. You've got to set the pace that, uh, that she's going to follow in after. And, uh, you know, there's other elements, obviously, being in a good church, you know, being under good teaching, those kinds of uh, leadership issues. But 
So much is going to come down to just your own personal, your own personal life and example. Uh, another question back here. Yeah, and just repeat the question if you... Yeah, the question is about Ephesians 5, the reference to transparency and how much do you share and how much do you not. The principle, of course, in Ephesians 5 is that you, it's evil. Speaking of evil done in secret is not a good thing uh, and represents kind of the pagan life. It seems to me from that text that Paul's main point is to not be like the world and the world loves to revel in what is evil. Uh, if you've got to admit a sin, I mean, no one would suggest that that verse means that you never confess something because of the graphic nature of some wickedness, especially in a marriage where betrayal has happened. Confession has to be specific, and a true confession anyway is specific before the Lord, and sometimes when, when the sin is against not only the Lord but someone in your life, uh, you, transparency demands that you talk about the nature of the sin but sometimes in discipleship groups, the, and, and I'm reacting a little bit, to be honest, Drew, with, with just the idea that, that everyone sat around and just peeled back the layers and got all transparent. Well, what was happening is, first of all, uh, you know, there's, a, there's something in our flesh that, you know, Proverbs warns, we, we love a juicy morsel that goes down deep, and, and we will use... Uh, the, the specifics, the details of someone's sin in ways that are fleshly, and it appeals to the flesh. And so clearly, the Apostle Paul, uh, in that passage, the, the principle might be extended to the fact that that would be to revel in some sin. That would be to rejoice in unrighteousness for your own titillation, for your own sort of you know, appeal to your flesh. So we're not to do that. And, and often those relationships, somebody might believe that you're, you're really engaging in a relationship when you've you know spilled your guts and everything it's more important to say what is it about my sin that represents the depth and breadth and length of it so that I can see how anchored the habit is you know we don't really talk about how a person's past has unfolded unless we're trying to find the depth of an idolatry the length of years you've fed that idolatry the the, the difficulty dislodging it and starving it. And that's what we're after. So transparency means full confession of, of uh, you know, sin before the Lord in a specific way if it's done to somebody. And, and if it's just, you know, the sin that takes place in your mind and is before the Lord, but in a discipleship relationship you're wanting to divulge it, the general categories of sin are, are certainly sufficient unless you're trying to get to the to the, um, how deep the idol goes, how long it's been an established pattern. If somebody says, well, I was immoral, that, that may indicate a particular approach to helping them. If they say, I have a pattern of immorality, uh, well, what do you mean a pattern? Well, I mean, every you know, two weeks I have X, Y, Z take place, and, and I, I secretly do it, and I hide it, and I contrive to do it, and I, I work my way around accountability, and then that's a denial of the conscience at a level that has to take, you know, a different approach, and the fruit of repentance would be different as well. I might also add, as a sidebar, just this came to my mind, Andrew, as I was, I was thinking about it, sometimes the idea of confession uh, gets confusing unless we put it into the categories the Bible seems to put it into. So let's just say we divide sin and its 
and it's uh, repentance into you know basic categories like secret, private, and public. So you're to confess your sin uh, to the widest circle it has offended. So when you've sinned secretly in your mind, you know sometimes college kids get into this idea where you know they had they lusted after someone and they they hear that they're to confess their sins to one another. So then they go right up to somebody, hey, I lusted after you, and that's not helpful. Uh, <laughs> In general, that's not helpful. But what's happening there is a secret sin of the mind. It's before the, before the Lord. No one else can see it. They need to confess it to the Lord. If it's, if it's gone outside of that and you've not only sinned in your mind, but it has manifested itself in a sin against your spouse or someone else, then you confess it to the widest circles. So that would be like a private kind of sin. If, if a pastor sins publicly or someone sins against a bunch of people publicly, or even you as a father sin against your children by yelling at their mother in, you know, in anger in front of the kids, uh, and you don't seek forgiveness of the kids, that's, that's a mistake. That's a public sin against the family dynamic, and, and everyone saw it, and you need to repent of it. But nothing further than that. It's just a matter of how deep does the idol go. Everything else, the superfluous details, um, biblical categories are fine. If somebody says they've been involved in homosexual sin, we know what homosexual sin is. I don't have to know every tryst, every detail, because that wouldn't help my mind, certainly not going to help them, and be a violation of Ephesians 5 eventually, because someone's going to revel in it, or the flesh is going to be appealed to, and that's, that's not good. Does that help? That's something you said yesterday, or this morning, I can't remember, this. I thought was really good. Something that we all should take is, is that discipleship is defined by clarity. Because I've been in those meetings back in college where everybody's, you know, kind of going around. The whole idea is just bury your soul and then we go home and, you know, so, somehow it's supposed to help you. Never helped. I mean, I felt dirtier than when I went. Nothing was more clear. How to battle sin was not more clear, any of that stuff. So that point you made was so good. I mean, if you just think through discipleship in terms of clarity, when I go into that relationship, do I leave more clear on what God's will is, what God's way is for my life? And to the extent that exposing things in your heart to tell people how you battle through sin, that's very helpful. But just to go around circle and share one another's dirt, I mean, that, that doesn't necessarily help anybody do anything because discipleship is about coming closer to the Lord and understanding his will. So that's very, very helpful stuff, Jerry. Another question? Shreyas. So one of the difficulties that the discipleship is discipling without being discipled. So how can I disciple someone in an area where I'm struggling with? Do I have to get over it? Or so restate your question for me one more time, Shreyas. So can, the, can a person disciple another in an area he himself is struggling? Why'd you hand it to me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from my perspective, um, I don't know what these guys will say, but yes. Um, I have, it is just absolutely uncanny how many times... Pastor Teague will give me a counseling folder, which really is discipleship, right? And guess who is struggling with the same thing that that counselee has come and asked for? So 
God uses them in my life. The um, iron sharpens iron, right? And, and, and as that takes place, I mean, I, I confess that to them in the counseling room. Brother, I've got the same problem. I can't believe you came here. This is, we grow together through this. And again, there's that, that camaraderie between me and the other person is, you know, I'm, I, I think, again, Jerry said this yesterday, that we're all in this together, right? The, the 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 13, the, there's, there's nothing that you're struggling with that somebody else hasn't struggled with. And so often for me, the people that God brings across my path I'm struggling with that same sin, which uh, perhaps I wouldn't have taken a serious uh, look of uh, eradicating that from my life um, had that person not come. So I I think it helps them to know that um, we're we're not up here, right? None of us are. And and until we see Christ, we're going to be struggling with the commonalities of life that those around us are as well. So... I would just say the issue is the conscience. You cannot disciple someone in an area where you're defiling your conscience. You know, you may struggle with something, but if that is the, the struggle going on in your heart and life, I mean, that's obviously, that's the way we learn uh, to battle sin. We've got to have those struggles. We've got to fight through them. And if you're confessing that to the Lord and you're keeping your conscience tender and clear, sure, I mean, you can... You can disciple someone. That's the whole nature, like Jerry said, of preaching. I mean, if I, if, I only, if I could only preach what I'm perfectly living, then, you know, close the doors and turn out the lights. There's nothing to say. Uh, I've got the always preach better than what I am. And yet one of the wonderful graces of being in pastoral ministry is that you're constantly bombarded in your conscience with the word of God, and you have to you have to be always confessing, you know where you fail. I was thinking of Timothy, I charge and entrust you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So you you know you can go and you can talk to someone about something that has been a struggle or it may be a struggle in your life, if. If that's something that you're genuinely fighting and you've confessed it to the Lord, there's tenderness in your conscience, you're, you're battling through it, and uh, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing uh, the Lord's grace working in that, uh, you, know, you shouldn't shrink back. You know, hopefully you've seen some growth in the last year or two, whatever it is going on in your life, but you haven't arrived at perfection yet. You're continuing to battle it with the right kind of conscience. Yeah, I, I might, uh, I mean, that's exactly right. Um, you should be willing <clears throat> to reach out and help people, even if you've been battling something. Repentance is key. If you're not repentant, you can help no one. I might add one final thing just to think about. Um, if, if that sin for which you've just repented and now someone else has come to you and they have the same struggle, if that is a pattern in your life, the help you're going to give is confessedly limited. It's limited because you're not yet proven in a stronger pattern. So you can help them, but you must also acknowledge that because it's been a pattern, the beginnings of your growth in that area is what you offer them. You don't offer them provenness in that area over the long haul. I think that's an important thing to say because there are some 
in evangelicalism who have, have got this idea that somebody who's fallen multiple times in a given area better understands the man who falls in that area, and therefore he's a better counselor. Well, no one is a good counselor who's unrepentant. And the best uh, uh, discipleship, the least limited discipleship, are those who've, who've not only repented, but now have established some patterns of repentance and growth in an area. So you're not, you're not completely out of the game when you're experiencing that. We, that. The thing that Tim mentioned happens to us all the time. But you've got to look at those two keys. Am I repentant, keeping a clean conscience? And am I acknowledging that the level of pattern I have is as far as I can go? I can't go some places with some guys who need help because I haven't been proven in that area enough yet. But I'll offer whatever I can, absolutely wide open to it as a peer in struggle. So, another question. Isaac. <laughs> I need to seek her forgiveness tomorrow at church. Well, um, obviously, if, if by attack you mean they're, they're sinning in the moment. I mean, sometimes you could carve out conversations, brief conversations, where there's an honest inquiry. But if you suspect this is, there's, there's something behind this, there's a barb to it, that's the first thing I'd mention. Hey, I just want you to know that's how that's coming across to me. That's the first thing I say. I don't want to misperceive you, but what's, what's coming out, since out of the mouth the heart speaks, here's, here's what I'm hearing from you. And whatever you get from that, well, if, if, if that's unresolvable right here where you just confess it as wrong and move on, then I'm encouraging you to go. I don't need to hear anymore. You got to go right to the man. That way, when, when the motives are being exposed, you've just forced it upon them to make good on what they claim is an innocent interchange if they, if they so want to claim that. If they say, nah, he's too difficult, he's intimidating, or I don't trust him, or then grab him and say, we're going together. I'll go with you. I love you. You're a friend. I'm trying to help you. You've obviously got an unreconciled dynamic here. I'm in. I'm all in. Let's go together. And, uh, and I'll try to be, uh, you know, a help. If he's unwilling to do that, uh, this conversation's about to change. Because now he's unwilling to do what Matthew 5, 24 and 25 say. He's got something against his brother or he knows his brother has something against him, whatever. He's got to go. If he actually thinks he's picked up on, an, on a known sin, Galatians 6, 1 is in order. He's to go and he's to, you know, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, taking heed to himself lest he be tempted. If you, if you see none of that attitude going on. Uh, you know you're you're going to have to shift the conversation to a warning, a caution that uh, that what he's just said and done 
um, is divisive. And uh, it may not be the worst case of it yet, but we're, we're beginning to test where your heart's willing to go. You're keeping a record of wrongs or you're unwilling to reconcile. Now the issue's on you. The Lord looks at you in your heart. And I'm here to admonish you as, as maybe the Lord's last warning to you. You've either got to go to him or go with me to him or you got to give this up and repent of it as sin in your heart. There are no other options. This isn't honest inquiry anymore. This isn't sweep it under the rug. This isn't, well, you know, never mind. We'll just change the subject. It's already done. The deed is done. You've exposed bitterness in your heart of some kind. you got to go the biblical means to get it restored. And if you have picked up on a sin and you're not loving your brother by going to him and helping him with that in private like we're commanded to. And so there's a lack of love there as well. And there are no other options, gentlemen. That's it. So that's how I handle those friendships. Another question? Zach? How should we go about seeking to be discipled? Yeah. Well, part of the challenge when you consider uh, cultivating discipleship uh, model of ministry, philosophy of ministry is how much do you structure, how much do you bring to a formal level when you want to see it happening in a natural way. Um, you know, as Jerry mentioned before, in, when he was uh, young in his life and marriage, he would pursue people that he knew would be examples that would, yeah, he would annoy them uh, to pursue them. So that's... Yeah, that's right. Uh, if, if, that's, if there's things in your life or your marriage that you're desiring, uh, you know, there, there are going to be men in the church that you, you have observed and have uh, related to that you know could uh, give you wisdom, give you guidance, maybe just in initial discussions, not something you're setting up, hey, for the next eight weeks, but just begin initial conversations Having you know, being open about your struggles, uh, and and kind of testing the ground if there's a willingness or even a, um, a uh, an opportunity to for a need to be met in your life. Uh, and I know there are many men in here that would uh, revel that opportunity to to participate in that. Um, so that would be really the ideal way as you develop relationships in the church, especially, you know, you and Sandy being new in the church, I know that it's, uh, you know, kind of difficult to ease your way into that and assimilate in that way in relationships. But so patience for, for sure in, in, in that, but being uh, taking initiative, it, letting someone know you desire to be discipled and to open your life up is a positive thing. Uh, it's it's not an annoying thing as it may appear, and if if men are seeking to disciple, uh, that's just the providence of the Lord that that will meet a desire in their life, and and it may you may not hit on the right people at the right time, but but pursuing it uh, to me is I think a, a natural way that it should happen. Um, but then we have to be mindful that are we. 
you know, drawing from the resources and ignoring opportunities to then lead and guide and disciple in other ways uh, and, and pursuing that in our own life as you have opportunity to serve in the church as well. So any other thoughts? I would just put a footnote, uh, that being sort of the main paragraph is pursue people. I had that same experience where I was in churches and they didn't have very good discipleship programs and I didn't wait around. I mean, I just went after found someone and said I'm, I'm coming over you know this night and uh, imposed myself on them but you know as I also went on in course of ministry I realized that discipleship happens in ministry and so just as a footnote of that I would say place yourself in the life of the body in ministry and and discipleship opportunities will arise as you are serving wherever you're serving alongside of the people you're serving with. And it might be in a Bible study class, uh, you know, serving alongside someone in a small group or might be on a mission trip. It might even be, you know, serving in a kitchen somewhere and you're just rubbing shoulders with other godly people who are serving there. And you're going to, you're going to learn things just by being there together with them. Other uh, questions? Roy? How would you approach discipling somebody that is unsaved, but you know, maybe they're open to discussing scripture or, or even pursuing things, but, but they're also not a saved person and openly uh, it's not an understanding, like the lack of understanding, but they're open to discipleship or reading the Bible or, or discussing the truth of scripture. So your question is, just to repeat it, uh, how do you go about discipling someone that is unsaved or doesn't appear to be saved? And um, basically, are you exposing them simple to, only to simple gospel truths, or are you going on to discuss other doctrines with them when they are not saved? Is that essentially what you're asking? Yeah. Um, just last week, um, I was with a young man that... Um, is involved in a ministry similar to the one that I've been involved with for the last 14 years. And he was here at our ministry and, and part of our church for a few months as well. And he told me that um, the ministry that was currently evangelizing slash discipling him um, was presuming that they all understood the gospel. And he said, what I appreciated about my time at Faith Community and his steps was that you, you guys uh, were very careful to observe as best man can uh, that, that I understood the gospel without taking me further down the road. And you can start to see the, the problem with moving too far down this road of assumption of salvation because then we're no better off than the pray this prayer and you're saved people from my perspective, right? So I think we have to stay in the evangelistic mode, not, you know, trying to get them to make some kind of a decision every time we meet, but but being very careful about the the portions of scripture that we are discussing with them. For, for example, 
I uh, very often I stay in John chapter 3 and, uh, and talking about being born again in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, the first um, eight verses of that. You know, we, uh, we once were like that, you know, and just really painting a picture so that they can understand in their mind that, that there's a, a fundamental thing, salvation, being born from above, being born again, being awakened from the the dead that that takes place before we can go further down that road. So my the with the somebody else might have a little bit different idea of this, but for the, the men that God sends me that, that I'm in that mode with and often that's right where we're at. I I can't presume uh, and and I can't because the times that I have, I've learned subsequently down the road that it wasn't true, right? We, we, we may want to move further thinking that, that this is true, but, you know, time, time just tells. So I, I think the best advice I can give in those kind of situations is slow down. God is sovereign in, in, his, in his sovereignty, in his time, he will reveal the truth to them. And, and we don't have to go way out here to the deep doctrines of the faith right away, right? We, we can stay right here at the cross. The, you know, I, Shane taught me something years and years and years ago that I use in every meeting that I have with somebody the first time. I ask a question, how many sins will God allow into heaven? And, you know, they fidget around in their seat and I said it's a trick question I let them off the hook a little bit there okay well none you got it man then I'll follow that up with well what happens if you die with unconfessed sin in your life and you know somebody that doesn't know the Lord can't answer that question that seems bizarre to me right well because I know the answer right and 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 I believe enough in the sovereignty of God that I don't have to give him the answer and, and I just, over time, just kind of start to feed with the scriptures the answer to that question. My homework for somebody like that may be, you know what, read Romans chapter 6 ten times this week, you know. Then when you come back, we'll talk about it. But I think just to slow down and stay, you know, with that, that evangelistic mindset. Roy, and I was, uh, I was just going to say probably the most common uh, avenue where we uh, most of us have experience in that is with our children uh, because we have a responsibility to teach them the word of God and yet they're born in unbelief and so you just think about how do you do that with your children well two things you never lose sight of the fact that they're unbelievers never I mean when you're talking to them about whatever it is in the word of God and what God expects and demands of all men you have to be crystal clear that they do not have the capability to do that which means that you have always got to be explaining to them why they don't have the capability to do that so I think there's an there's an element where you can talk to an uh, certainly with your children and you do that for years with them saying this is what God demands God demands that you tell the truth God demands that you be thankful God demands and this is what is involved with all that but you know I tell my kids but you can't do that without Christ and to the extent that you're failing to do that, it just represents that you need Christ. So we turned all of that into evangelistic opportunity with our kids. We were constantly sharing the gospel with them through the means of presenting God's various demands on all the avenues of life. 
you know, you don't have as much close contact, maybe as frequent contact with maybe folks in the marketplace, possibly. But you, you can talk to them about God's demands, but you can never, never lose sight of the fact that they don't have the ability to do it. And you really ought to do your best not to let them lose sight of that. That, that all this stuff that you're talking about, just always reminding them, yeah, but, you know, you can't do that without Christ. It won't happen. Yeah, that's, a, that's an important point because whether you're talking about your kids or adults, sometimes we get confused. Like I remember um, families in our neighborhood would ask us why we did what we did with our kids. And so they're pagan families, but they want some better parenting in their family. And so we would give them principles that are clearly proverbial. They're, they're in the Bible. And they would practice them and have some measure of, of uh, you know, behavioral modification and positive and negative reinforcement and those kinds of things. But if I left it there, if, if the common grace were all there is to the gospel, obviously there's, there's no salvation. And many ministry models today are implying that that, that help that you give to an unbeliever uh, to better their life is enough. In fact, one particular very prominent teacher teaches that the common grace gospel work that you do is the same as special grace gospel, is the same as preaching the gospel. And he's, he couldn't be more incorrect on that because of what Shane just said. Uh, I can offer them that help, but if I don't ever turn the corner and say, I'm glad that, that practical principles from God's practical wisdom literature helps you but you have no power to make good on it. And my fear is this, will, this could delude you into thinking that you have all you need or you have a relationship with God. And so I just need to tell you that the standard is far higher than you can imagine. And no one can meet it. And that's why we need a Savior. So, yeah, it's just I do that with premarital all the time. Somebody's family member, someone in my church has a sister or a daughter or whatever. And they want they and their their unsaved daughter and her new fiance to come and do premarital with me, and I always say the same thing: I'm happy to do that if they understand that I'm going to give them uh, the gospel and I'm going to give them principles that they can only live out in the gospel. And until they come to Christ, I, I can't marry them. I won't marry them. Um, and not that marrying two pagans isn't isn't you know something a pastor can do. Some pastors can do that because marriage is a great institution and it honors God for people to get married. Uh, we choose not to so that our church doesn't become a marriage mill for a bunch of unbelievers. We don't want to set a precedent. But it becomes a great evangelistic moment, and, and invariably I'll say to them right up front, you understand I'm going to give you all this instruction from the Bible, and you also understand that without coming to Christ, you will be limited in You won't have any power to practice it from the heart. It will just be outward, at which point, I, you know, some point you're going to have to decide whether you're going to give your life to Christ or choose another preacher or whatever. And just one more thing, just with parenting, the same thing would be true here is you've got to be on guard against being anyone who would propagate legalism because man's heart wants that. And if you are not careful, you could very well just be giving people a list of things to do that they're walking away thinking, oh, it's going to please God because I did all the things that Roy told me to do. And uh, same thing with your kids. Another question? I know the, uh, the scriptures tell us to not give up on counseling and discipling and, and Jesus himself uh, pursued people with compassion. Um, but is there ever a time in discipling someone? 
the question is, is there ever a time when you should give up on pursuing someone for discipleship or should you, regardless of circumstances, perpetually pursue them? Um, so. I think 2 Timothy 2.2 gives us direct wisdom there in regards to not only being faithful to observe what we've been taught, teach what we've been taught, but even have wisdom in who we're teaching, that we're to teach those who will be faithful to teach others. Um, so that, to me, speaks more to priority in our opportunities, that there, there may always be a level of interaction you have with somebody where there's always opportunity, but it, it, your priorities might need to shift if you're recognizing there's just a lack of faithfulness there to apply, to teach, uh, to observe, to, to live out, and then are they really going to carry on? And that's what's really the wisdom we see in regards to the church, that if you're talking about somebody you're influencing at work or in your neighborhood, someone who may profess to be a believer and you're desiring to pursue them, uh, there's going to be a limited opportunity to truly disciple them unless they're you're relating with them in the body of Christ, a level of faithfulness that can be observed in their life. Um, but if you're sacrificing other opportunities for the sake of that relationship, I would say that you might want to reorient your priorities there. Be willing to uh, know that you're not letting them down if they're not demonstrating a level of faithfulness to that. Does that make sense? So, Randy, in light of that, and, and that does happen, so then the dilemma in the heart is they're not faithful yet. If I pull the trigger now and cut them loose, you know, how am I to process that tonight when I lay my head on the pillow that, that I've somehow, um, it's too early, I won't ever really know if it was too early, or uh, maybe the persistent mercies and sacrifices of my time with them ought to continue. You know, where am I able to make that decision? How can I do that? Yeah, I, I would say we were having this discussion earlier about a, a young man that uh, there's been a struggle to see faithfulness. Uh, I don't think we ever really give up the desire to see the Lord uh, transform them through our desire to influence them. But there may be a point in time where we need to recognize there's other areas that we could commit to that may sacrifice time with that individual. It depends on how we're relating to them. Like I said, if there's a natural ongoing way in which you're relating, um, just continue to pursue them, hoping the Lord will bring about that transformation and level of faithfulness. But if there's, you know, a, a need to uh, turn our attentions to another area of, or an individual that's demonstrating faithfulness, then I, I'd see that would be a prudent thing to redirect, but never give up. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's a great way to look at it. And I was thinking about the idea of faithfulness just to kind of spread it out on the table a minute. In my experience, what, what that's looked like to me is when I've given principles, I've laid out principles for the individual to obey, 
And each time they come back for lengthy times together, they want different principles than those. And they want, it's like a silver bullet they're looking for. They're looking for some something that's going to really key in and unlock their understanding. When these are first principles and they're so basic, so clear, and and their eyes would open to grander things if were they to be obedient in just this area. And so I just begin to test that. Why is it you've not been obedient in the things we've already talked about? Is it because you don't understand it? Well, let me give you more understanding. So I stick with it. If they understand it, but they're, they're um, weak, well, it's like Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5. I'm going to help the weak, come alongside the weak. Are they faint-hearted? I'm going to encourage them. Are they unruly? I'm going to start admonishing them. But if they want other principles than these, there's a, there begins to be a level of stubbornness. And the only reason they're hanging on to the council, even if transparent, is because that makes them feel better about, you know, feel more spiritual because they actually went to counseling, actually spilled their guts. And so it is a bit of a catharsis for them, but it isn't real change. I might say to that individual, you know, at some point here, the Lord's going to take you out into a wilderness the lessons of which have to happen out there, and I can't, I can't be a part of teaching you those. But I've given you so much time on these principles. Just do these first ones, and then we'll see about moving to the other. If they come to me every week and say, I, I'm trying, I'm struggling with these first ones, but I know these are the right ones, I'll stick with them. I'll stay with them. It's, it's that level of faithfulness that says, hey, there's some stubbornness rising up in here, and you're, you're basically setting aside what you've already heard and asking for some silver bullet in some other way. I can't give you that. You're about to go into probably a season of, of serious challenge, and God has to do that work somewhere away from us, away from me. It just means that we've got to question ourselves about are we really giving discipleship? I mean, if we're allowing a person to keep coming back to us and dodge the issues, are we really discipling them anymore? Or are we spinning our wheels, wasting our time and their time? And some guys' view of discipleship, and Jerry talked about this a little bit, you know, they just get together and you know, spend 45 minutes talking about, you know, whatever their hobbies are or something like that, maybe a few minutes talking about the Bible, and they get, you know, move on, and no one's ever growing, or just a lot of time wasted and not really getting at the hard issues. So you've got to press deeper and deeper into those things. I, I always refer to it like the vice. You know, if people, if people aren't necessarily seeing progress, I just tweak that vice a little bit more and put the pressure on more and more trying to bring out those underlying issues on why are we not seeing progress in these areas and eventually if you make that the issue the scripture the issue it will take care of itself most of the time because they're not going to want to keep coming back to you they're going to flee because they know every time they come back to you you're going to pin them down on on (laughs) we we still haven't done a b and c here and um you know you i just for my life i just don't find a lot of people want to keep coming back for that unless they really really want to grow in which case it's it's a worthy it's a worthy endeavor to keep in, enduring with them uh, i think we're supposed to go to two right it's time uh kickoff is i mean um, our time is over at uh, <laughs> it is saturday in the south <laughs> Uh, we are very, very grateful for our uh, time together. So thankful for you men. I've just loved the fellowship interaction I've been able to enjoy with uh, you, and, and I've just watched the fellowship taking place around the room. So 
Hopefully your heart has been encouraged from that, definitely from the time together with you, Jerry. Um, you're just uh, such a blessing. You're such a pastor and a great model to uh, all of us. We're blessed, um, you know, in the seminary to have Jerry doing this week in and week out with our students. Uh, they, they get the joy of sitting for an hour, uh, maybe sometimes two hours each week, and, and listening to these kind of heart issues being uh, dissected uh, for their own training purposes. And that's one of the, one of the very unique uh, gifts the Lord has given to us at Expositor Seminary is to be able to have just a whole host of men who understand discipleship, who understand spiritual life, and are able to and willing to, uh, to unpack it like that in such practical ways. So we're grateful for your ministry there within our church and to the men who are even students here among us. Looking forward to tomorrow. The Word of God will be praying for you tonight as you rest up, try to get your full voice back yeah. and, um, and be able to bring the Word of God tomorrow. Let me uh, close this out in a word of prayer. Thankful to you, O Lord, for this last couple of days. We're grateful for how you have uh, burdened Jerry with a love for the church that is born out of your love for the church. We hear coming through there a passion for the bride of Christ, knowing that we could never love her as you love her, but praying that you would continually increase our love for the church and reminded that uh, it is by your authority that we have been given this mandate and Woe to us if we do not obey. Make us disciples and disciplers for the sake of your body, that we might minister our gifts, that we might share our, our, um, our testimonies of your grace in our life, that we might magnify you for the many bountiful ways that we have seen you work and continue to see you work in our life. And we pray for faith community that you would indeed bind us uh, all together with that passionate pursuit of, of love for you and, and teaching others to love you, to do all that you have commanded, that we would be a, a church known for that kind of culture of discipleship. And Lord, it must be your work. It must be you moving among us by the work in your spirit to accomplish that. Your word tells us that as the head, it is you who is working in the members and supplying what every joint needs for the building up of itself in love. And so that's our prayer, Lord. We ask it in your name and for the sake of your glory.